Hi there, and welcome to Polyamory Uncensored, a podcast where we, your hosts, Lindsay Miller and Katie Williams, interview a poly person each episode, and we try to answer the five points of journalism. Who, what, when, where, and why, as it pertains to our poly lives. You're listening to episode 40, where we chat with Lucky. Stay tuned as we delve into the good, the bad, the ugly, and the just plain complicated truths about our poly lives. Okay, so Lucky, who are you? Oh, who am I? Um, my name's Lucky. I'm a sexuality educator and a licensed midwife in the state of Wisconsin. That last part is new. Mm-hmm. I just got licensed this month in January. So it's, Yay! Thank you. Awesome. I have been a birth worker, though, since 1998. So... Um, wow. Longer than some of your listeners have probably even been alive. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And also, I have three now adult kids, but we're still really close. So I get to interact with them on a pretty regular basis. Um, I don't know. Who else am I? I think that's me. I'm a writer. I'm trying to do math. That counts. Yeah, for sure. um, Your birth worker training could technically drink legally. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. (laughs) Isn't that funny? That is very cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, So another part of the who are you is how do you identify? Oh, yeah. So I am queer and monogamish and cis. I think that's it. All right. Yeah. What drew you to being monogamish? Oh, well, you know, so being queer and being monogamish for me, like, I grew up in a small town in the middle of Iowa. And the one thing that I always knew about myself uh, was that I was supposed to have kids. So a lot of people, you know, you'll talk to uh, trans or non-binary folks or queer people or whatever, and they'll say, I knew from the time I was a small child. And the thing that I knew was actually that I was supposed to have kids. And I took the most direct route to that, which was to um, meet a man when I was 18 years old and marry him as soon thereafter as I possibly could and start having kids. Um, But even in that relationship, still living in Iowa before the internet, really, I mean, there was kind of an internet, but we were together before there were even AOL chat rooms. So like, Mm -hmm. it was a long time ago. We already had a sense together that we wanted um, an additional partner, at least one. And not in a unicorn hunting sort of a way, but like somebody who would come and live with us and share our life. We said all the time to each other that we just had like a lot of love and we um, felt like, you know, you can kind of like feel it. What it's like um, if you put too much peanut butter and jelly on the sandwich, you put it together and it like squelches out and it's like it's not wasted exactly, but it's also not being utilized. Like it kind of felt like that even even back then, even before the Internet, even in the middle of Iowa, um, where like how do you even have how do you even find anything, you know, Um, and then um, eventually we moved to Milwaukee and then we separated and we divorced and I just kept getting into monogamous relationships over and over again and just always can do, you know, a year or two or three and be all right. And then at a certain point, I think like, I, I, this is not self-deprecating, but I am like a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I am 
I am a little high strung and I am enthusiastic and I have a lot of relationship energy to give and and eventually you get to a point or I got to a point often where I felt like I had all this love and all I could do was like throw it at a wall, you know, like it wasn't going out. It was just like, and so uh, when I met my current partner a little more than four years ago, we met on OkCupid, like I think everybody does these days. And in her profile, she said fiercely Polly. Um, openly kinky and fiercely poly, I think is how she identified. Wow, that's really, I love that. Yeah, yeah. it's like, I just really, and I was like, okay, all right, this is now, like here, if if this moves forward, and it did, and it moved forward beautifully, this is like the opportunity for me to potentially experience really deep love with a partner and also finally reach out and have this other thing that I've always thought I wanted that has always been inside of me. So that's that's my journey. That's awesome. What a great story. Thank you. Thank you. So what does polyamory or monogamish mean to you? Oh, so uh, when B and I were first dating, one of the very exciting early things that happened was that I was in contact with my high school boyfriend about, I don't know, probably computer programming. Um, and he's such a dear person to me. And he still just has such a piece of my heart. And I love him so much. And I was talking about him one day and I started to put that filter on the I had to put on for so long about that. Um, And another person also around the same time that I have very deep love feelings for, but we've never successfully had a relationship, also had a life event. And I was feeling like, you know, the stress you feel for someone else when they're going through something. And I was able to talk to this new partner about both of those things really openly. And there was no weirdness about it. And that was really exciting. So like that was really early on, right? Um, And that just like kind of laid this path for me, like laid it out in front of me so I could see it. And I knew that I would be able to walk down it when I was ready. So in my personal life, polyamory, monogamish means that um, I have the ability now in my 40s, finally, to really be open to all of the kinds of love that are out there. And some of those will be romantic, right? And some will be sexual. And a lot will be filial or or platonic or whatever but i don't have to i get to just feel what i feel and i don't have to always be walking a coded line with language um or only sharing part of my thoughts with my partner because of the possibility of upsetting her that is a gross thing that happens in a lot of relationships right for sure Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. even in a lot of poly relationships i think yeah i think probably yeah i know especially like my first poly relationship i still censored myself a lot when it came to talking about other partners i would find that i would only if i had something to say about a partner i would like only say it if it was a negative thing which felt Really, yeah, and I've heard of other people doing this too. It's like I will only talk about my other partner if I'm complaining about them, which, and I was doing it thinking so that they don't feel bad. Like if I'm saying something good, they might feel jealous or they might feel, you know, X, Y, and Z. But if I say something bad, then they'll feel better about themselves. Superior. Yeah. Yeah. But it also led to this other 
side effect that I didn't think about was that they then thought that this person was bad for me and was like, well, why are you with them? Like, why are you with them if all you have to say about them is bad things? And I was like, oh, no, I actually really love this person and they're great. I just never say it. Like, I never talk to you about it, you know? So, yeah, and I've read about other people doing the same thing. And I was like, oh, my God, I did that in my first relationship. I did that all the time. And it took years of practice to not do it, to, like, prevent myself from only doing negative talk about other partners. Yeah, I don't know that I do that, but I do tend to be quiet about what's going Mm -hmm. on in a way that actually does often feel like Mm self-censorship. Mm-hmm. Something to think about for sure. Yeah, I wonder if there's the um, if there's ever the inclination to go the other direction too, and only share the best things, so that the other person, so that so that the other partner isn't um, as worried or as upset or like, okay, good, we're trying this out and it's really working, and we're both really happy with Mm. it instead of talking honestly about like the good and the bad and all the things that you (laughs) all say. On every episode. And I think that can sometimes backfire a little bit of if you're only saying the good things, are they like, well, now you're going to leave me for them and Mm -hmm. it might spring up some insecurity. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it just doesn't feel honest or forthcoming. Mm -hmm. Like, what's really going on? Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And at the same time, I think that individuals also have, like, we have the right to only share the things we want to share right, right. and we get Absolutely. to have some parts of us that stay private or that are just between me and one other person so i think that finding that line of integrity and authenticity mm-hmm. in communication is really like it's well, got to be not a always work. the same between any two like two different relationships that space may land in different places right yeah, absolutely yeah agreed so um, you've somewhat addressed this, but uh, I'm going to just tackle it directly anyway. Um, when did you first know that you were poly or monogamish? <laughs> yeah, so um, gosh, I met my ex-husband when I was 18 and he was 10 years older than me. My parents were thrilled. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> and by thrilled, I mean freaking out. Yeah, I'm not really, not really happy about that. But I mean, we, that seems like a big age difference at eighteen. At eighteen, at 18 exactly. I think it is a it was a very big age difference. I, I mean, I was never even really shy or hesitant to say like, yeah, I'm just working through my father issues. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like, I just fully owned that, and not in like, in not like a kink way, and also not in an incestuous way. But I was like, I really think I need someone older to help me finish growing up. <laughs> That's really what I'm doing here. Nothing wrong with that. No. Especially if you're owning it. Yeah. And I, you know, we talked about it together. It wasn't like, you know, I was putting a a burden on him that he didn't know about. Mm -hmm. Um, But I would say that probably within a year of us dating, we were both like, you know, what would be great? What would be great is to find another person for us to to have in our relationship. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We actually um, uh, named that person, fictitious person that didn't exist. <laughs> and we would. Oh my gosh, we, what was their name? Maria. Okay. I'm uh, I'm Italian. Okay. And so, uh, you know, it was a name that was really familiar to me. Um, and uh, we would uh, sit down at the dinner table and then one of us would be like, Maria. 
Jenner's on. Oh my gosh, that's so sweet. <laughs> We'd get ready to go to bed, and I'd be like, "Come on, Maria, it's time to go to bed." <laughs> oh, that's, that's adorable. So nineteen, probably. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Wow. Um, when did you feel different from other people? If you if you do, I do. But there's so much about me that's different than other people. Uh, this name that I was given as a gift by my mother when I was born. <laughs> um, and uh, like, I'm quite short of stature and my hair started going gray when I was in fourth grade. And so I'm oh. in my mid forties wow. now and I'm completely silver and I've got this crazy voice. Right. And all I ever wanted was to have kids. And so like, you know, in junior high school, when I'm figuring out like, like that was like I've always been so different and the other thing and Lindsay and I you and I have talked about this before I think that's always been different about me is the way that people will just come up and tell you things about their mm -hmm. very personal life with like just no barriers right yep. Yep. no boundaries they'll just tell you anything that comes to their mind or ask you any question right and I've had that my whole life and it never weirded me out to hear these things from other people um it was never weird to me to think about the fact that my parents used to have sex. Like, I didn't imagine them having sex, but it also was like, of course they did. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Of course people have sex. My grandparents did. My children will in the future. Like, they do now, right? But, like, even yeah. when they were the little. Time when you were thinking about right, this. Yeah, right, yeah, exactly. I was like, my ch and it was, none of that was ever weird. And so, um, like, knowing that I could, like, really invest a lot of time and energy into more than one relationship was just another one of the things that made me feel quite different than most people. Mm -hmm. But though, oh, and you know, doing birth work too, mm -hmm. like being really called to it and not being grossed out by the things that gross most people out. I still am a sympathy puker though. Oh no. <laughs> that is a rough one. That is a like, oh man. People when they're having babies often vomit, especially kind of towards yeah. the end of labor. And and so if it's on me to hold the receptacle, oh. Oh, I'm constantly like mm. turning my head, like I take a breath, turn my head to the side, oh. wait, look back, go back. It's yeah. so bad. Yeah. Or I'll like sing the really ABCs in my head. It. Yeah, I sing the ABCs in my head. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. I can't hear Lindsay puking at me. <laughs> <laughs> That is not getting edited out. No. <laughs> Good. You go ahead and keep that in there. That is fabulous. Yeah. Oh, well, something that is interesting because I guess I, I've never really asked you when you felt queer because you were married to a man for mm -hmm. years. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously you knew Marie, Maria, Maria was you know, you know, you in your you imaginary life at least. Yes. That, yeah. Queer even back then. But like, was there a time in which you knew or felt yeah. that way yeah so um again my darling ex-husband who i really do adore he's a very good man um he, again i was like 19 and he said to me do you think you could be a lesbian <laughs> and i was like no <laughs> absolutely he's like are you sure because you you check out the ladies a lot and he was also dealing with um he had had a relationship with somebody uh, about 
what was that, maybe six years earlier than that. And after their relationship ended, she had come out as a lesbian. And so he is also like working through that. Another person he dated after he and I split up did as well. Oh, wow. He's I got mean, a I, track record. He, he likes girls who like, who like girls. He, he yeah. does. He does. And you know, what's funny is one time he was telling me about uh, somebody that he was interested in dating. This was after we were separated. And I was like, wow, she sounds great. Do you think she has a sister? And I was, and he was like, no, but I can probably flip this one for you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, so, but I identified as bisexual before we got married. Okay. And that was like, we got married in 94. So I was, was like I, kind of on the front end of a little bit. Yeah. Right. So I was identifying as bisexual, but then we were married and we were monogamous. I mean, we were monogamous because we couldn't find anyone to join our marriage. Right. Um, but we presented as Maria a, did not appear in <laughs> anybody else's. No matter how many times we tried to beckon her, <laughs> she did not, she did not join us. And, um, and so we presented as a straight monogamous couple. And when he and I separated, I went back to embracing a bi identity. And then um, I started seeing somebody new and we dated for several weeks and then we finally had the sex and it was really great. And she was a lady type person. And um, the next morning in the shower, where we have all of our best thoughts, right? Oh, in the sure. shower, and I'm washing up, and I thought to myself, like, wow, I never have to have sex with a man again. <laughs> and then, because I was already hyper into communication, I was like, why did you think you had to have sex with men in the first part, first place? Like, where did that thought come from? No one ever obligated you to having sex with men. So I got into like some really heavy analysis of myself, and I and identified for a little while then as a lesbian. And then, because also in 1994, there were not a lot of queer moms out there, there were who were visible to the imagination. Right. And when I came out later in the early aughts, you know, my oldest daughter had just gone into middle school and she like, that was a lot for her. She referred to my partner as her great aunt. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, well, I can't make you come out. I, I, right. well, I guess we'll tackle that one later. Um, and so while I was still with that partner and our relationship continued for about 10 years, I had this realization that I still very much could romantically love men, but I was not sexually attracted to cis men. And that's when I was like, okay. And also, you know, in the last 10 years, politically, we've been up and down in terms of queer rights, mm -hmm. right? We've had like little bubbles where we get a whole bunch and then somebody pops the bubbles and it's very scary again. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so definitely the politics played into my deciding to identify as queer. So there was like this thing where I'm primarily attracted to women and femmes, women spelled with an X there instead of an E, right? Mm -hmm. Primarily attracted to women and femmes, but the realization that romantically I can really love cis men, I just don't want to have sexual relationships with them at this point, but I know that I'm constantly changing and evolving. And I was like, there's just, and also, fuck you, everyone who wants to take our rights away. So mm -hmm. so this is, this is actually who I am, yeah. beyond a definition. That makes a lot of sense to me. I was monogamously married to a woman for 11 years. And um, I I had up until that point publicly identified as bi. And 
decided in the context of that marriage, like identifying as a lesbian, given that this is a monogamous relationship, kind of just makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and also it had that more politically defiant element to it, mm-hmm. right? which was an important thing for me at that time. Right. Also kind of early in the, you know, gaining some of those rights. From- yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So that was, that's, that was then. <laughs> yep. So where would you say you are in your poly or monogamish uh, journey? So that's such a good question. Because I'm not even really sure. Like, part of me feels like I've been doing this a long time, right? Because yeah. of all We've of been the- talking about Maria. We've been talking about Maria some time. since I was 19. And I'm in my 40s now, right? Um, and I... How do you solve a problem like Maria? <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, back in those days, you pa- placed ads in regular newspapers, the kind that get printed out and distributed. <laughs> Weird. Right? Those were a real thing, though, that were still happening definitely back then. I've had, uh, like, the closest that my ex-husband and I could get to what we wanted was to occasionally engage in group sex, which, you know, is fun, but wasn't. Like it was not fulfilling in the way that we wanted it right. to be, right? Um, and and no shade to people who only want to have group sex. No, like, good but on that's you. Not you Maria should have coming to bed. <laughs> exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. Good on you. Have all the group sex you want to have. Good for you. But for us, we were do- looking for that kind of deeper thing. And then I have had short-term relationships with more than one person, like you know, a month or six weeks, which is really about like not having the skills yet to make something last longer than that, even if I dearly wanted it to. And now I'm with Betty and our relationship is still feels really like new and honeymoonish, even though it's been four plus Mm -hmm. years. But uh, we are chatting with other folks and being comfortable and talking to each other. So yeah, so it's nice that... So Maria it... might still eventually come to bed. <laughs> Maria may come join us for dinner. <laughs> Maybe we can cook together. Doesn't that sound lovely? I know it's hyper-romantic, but... Um... There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> well, and our next question is always, where do you hope to go in your journey? Where do I hope to go in my journey? I hope... Okay, so I teach a lot of sex ed classes, right? And I talk to people, and I teach a lot... Um, a lot of classes to birth workers and I'm doing healthy sexuality classes. Um, And so I talk a lot about kind of the purpose of reproduction from a biological or anatomical standpoint, right? The purpose of sexuality is reproduction, which is gross, right? And I'm super glad that that's not the way it has to be anymore and that we have choices and we have ways to prevent pregnancy and ways to end pregnancy. But like on this really, really basic level, like mold spores and oak trees and squirrels and possums, like we're here to propagate ourselves, right? And so that's kind of our biological destiny. I tell people all the time, although we get to avoid that destiny now if we want to, and yay for that. Collectively, it's still our destiny. Collectively (laughs) as a species, right? But I feel like um, spiritually what we're here to do is to give and receive as much of as many kinds of love as we can in our time, right? So I hope for everyone, including myself, a wide range of love experiences that um, includes romantic and sexual love, but all the other really beautiful kinds of love too. And I feel like I'm 
I am in this really supportive partnership where I don't feel a rush to like run out and do that thing the way like I feel like my ex-husband and I always felt like this pressure to make it happen like we just had and we were younger also right our drives were higher like we had a lot of other things happening um, but we did feel like we had to go out and get that thing and we couldn't and it was frustrating and now I feel like I've got a long time to take this journey and find every kind of love and give as much of it back as I possibly can. I hope that didn't sound like a non-answer. No, I thought that was a beautiful answer. So why would you say that you are monogamish or polyamorous? Why? 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 Wait, what do you mean why? <laughs> like, well, you were just talking about sort of what you think our purpose here on Earth is. Yeah. That feels like it ties into why a little bit, maybe. I mean, I still just... Okay, well, I really ardent believe that no one person can provide everything that somebody else needs right like that's kind of just so basic and I have had relationships and witnessed relationships with people who really think that it should just be the two of them right I dated someone once and a friend of mine came over to help me do the dishes my kids were little and they were running around and they were screaming and I was homeschooling and it was overwhelming and a friend came over and helped me do my dishes which in the straight world happens all the time. These things happen all the time. But I was in this lesbian relationship and my lesbian partner was incensed about it because like that's partner work. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> right. <clears throat> and like that was just that just like really underscores this thing about like, OK, well, you weren't here to do the dishes. So if it's partner work, <laughs> come on, yeah. like, Where let's do you? that. Right. Mm -hmm. You can't be here all the time. We need more people. So there's like that really basic. No one can provide everything that someone else needs. Um, but also there's just I, I work with a lot of people not in midwifery in sex ed who will say like, oh, my God, people make me so tired. Oh, God, I can't stand people. And I am always the person who comes back and I'm like, really? I, I love people. <laughs> I just love all the people. And so I guess that's probably the why. I just love all the people. <laughs> I do. I wish it was like I wish it was easier to not sometimes <laughs> to be less invested in every person who like enters my my line of sight. Well, and our last question is, uh, why did you agree to be interviewed today? Oh, well, because I like you and you asked. <laughs> <laughs> it's fair. <laughs> I like you and, and you asked. Um, but also, I guess, oh, gosh, there's like layers, right? Again, we can go back to politics because fuck you. That's why like we are. The, <laughs> I love that answer so much. <laughs> I just think like we're we're on a real sharp precipice right now where things could go okay Terribly, or they could go right. very badly yeah. and i don't want to be afraid um, i am afraid and i don't want to be afraid um and so i think talking about these things helps other people like god what if we'd had podcasts when i was 19 right right what yeah. if i could have heard somebody else say the words i didn't know the word polyamorous until I don't think I knew the po word polyamorous until I started working at the tool shed, honestly. Mm -hmm. So that was in 2012. Um, I, I, the word non-monogamy was not a thing, yeah. right? Like, So what did you, how did you frame M Maria and your 
We just wanted another wife, both of us. <laughs> oh, that's so great. Yeah, that's what like we wanted. Like you were going to find it, whether you had a specific word yeah. or not. Yeah, we didn't know what it was. It was to be Yeah. Yeah, and like I said, you know, with I mentioned group sex. Like we tried to find swinging communities because it was the closest thing. Right. But none of that really ever appealed to me. I've never... I wish I were different in this way. I've never been able to really have casual sex with people. <laughs> I'm not emotionally good at it. I attach more importance than it probably has. And it leaves me like with a lot of questions after. And I wish I was better at casual sex. And I'm just not. So trying to get involved in swinging communities was not. Oh, yeah. That would yeah. not really help either. Yeah. yeah. These are not the droids you're looking for. They were definitely not <laughs> the sex dolls that I was looking for at all. There's a joke in there somewhere. but All right. Well, we are going to take a quick break, and then we'll come back and talk about our topic. All right. And we are back. And uh, today we wanted to talk about birth work and inclusivity, uh, which you have done a lot of work towards. And uh, I guess what is your uh, what is your work with birth work and, and inclusivity? Yeah. Um, so I, like I said, I've been a birth worker since 1998 and I started as a doula and a childbirth educator. And then I was a La Leche League leader for a number of years too. And then, uh, eventually a student midwife. Can you explain what La Leche leader is? Oh uh, yeah. La Leche League leader. La Leche League, um, <laughs> Gosh, it's really politically charged again right now. Um, but so the La Leche League started in the 50s with seven women who were going against most of the doctor's recommendations and breastfeeding instead of formula feeding. And they were all women who went to church together. Um, yeah, in Chicago or in the suburbs of Chicago. And they would go to church picnics and be breastfeeding their babies. And then people would come up and ask them for help or ask questions about it. And so they put up a sign at church and they're like, we'll just have some friends over and you can come over and ask your breastfeeding questions. And the first meeting that they had, they had more than 30 people show up. <laughs> and the second meeting they had, they had so many people that people couldn't even come in the house. And uh, from there, they grew and grew and grew. This was like, so this is the 50s, right? So if you lived in Seattle and you had a question about breastfeeding, you wrote them a letter. Wow. And you sent it. And oh then you God. waited for a reply. Um, yeah. It was like a totally different world. And they came up with the name La Leche League because La Leche is the milk in Spanish. And it was the 50s. So they couldn't mail anything that had the word breast, breast. in it. Oh. Um, and so um, eventually La Leche League grew to, to be an international organization and for a long time was the world's foremost authority on breastfeeding and lactation. Um, in the last 10 years, because of the way the world has changed, right, and we do everything on the internet now, the need for peer-to-peer -peer support groups has really gone down um, and their funding has gone down as a result and also, there are still some pretty uh, outdated beliefs in that group about how you need to be like mm -hmm. the as uh, again, it's a pretty cis organization and they haven't done a lot of work to make it inclusive. And they also have a really strong belief that if you're the lactating parent, you should be home with the baby. Um, and so Yikes. they you can come to the groups if that's not true, but you can't become a leader if those things aren't true. If you work outside the home, you can't be a leader. 
Um, and so there's been and some. Not a lot has changed since the 1950s. <laughs> wow, when I, started. I, I did yeah. not know during that yeah. during the three years that I regularly went to. Yeah, <laughs> because you're mostly focusing on the other women or the other right. moms, the other parents who are there, right? And I think one of the things that Lalaisha like did really, really right is that it was peer to peer support. So I was there as a leader, but if the two of you came as just meeting attendees and you had a question and you had an answer, the two of you would talk about that. Or if you came and there were Mm -hmm. 10 other people there, all 10 of those people could tell you what had worked for them. Mm -hmm. And then we were just there to be like, actually, you don't want to serve a room temperature bottle, right? Like we were there to clarify things. Um, But, and so that was one of the things that they did really, really right. And people who attended La Leche League meetings will tell you that they still have friends that they met there, right? As you helped each other through those really difficult early years. Such a hard time. (laughs) And breastfeeding sucks so much. Well, it really depends on your experience. It does. That's true. It's true. Yeah. I had a fabulous experience. I did after a few yeah horrible weeks yeah yeah <laughs> tries it, yeah it is definitely yeah. harder than you imagine it's going to be because right. you know there's sort of this mythological natural blah 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 right. and and it should work right why like, is it not working and god damn it like nobody yeah. tells you it's gonna hurt <laughs> and it hurts so much yeah. <laughs> like, it hurts at first but, so right. much I mean, you've never and you can't have def- anybody touching your boob that much <laughs> ever ever before ever. your life no matter what you're into I mean, it's every 20 minutes <laughs> yeah well and i think the other thing is that breastfeeding or chest feeding is a relationship between two people, right? Mm-hmm. And we learn how to do relationships in social settings. It's a social knowledge, but we don't learn how to breastfeed in social settings because it's supposed to be so private and there's so much body shame and there's so there's just so many layers to why we don't breastfeed socially. Um, but if we still breastfed socially, it's not that the beginning wouldn't be hard, but it wouldn't be as hard. We, we would see people doing it. We would have seen the solutions, yeah. right? I never Our, had a hold you know like it was just yeah oh, there's yeah. so like many the first things month, i practically had to, had to strip to be able to do it i just couldn't <laughs> yeah. figure out how to manage my clothes yeah, yeah exactly yeah. and, and if, I, if it had been a social thing i would have been able to see how people manage their clothes and also oh you wouldn't have felt weird about taking your shirt off if you needed to yeah but is it i didn't three feel or, that weird but <laughs> after probably like a month of um you know trying i was able to breastfeed while holding the baby in target with no one knowing yeah because yeah. like everything was yeah oh, everything yeah. Was never stopped up. wigging out my ex-wife like like, mm. she could not deal with the fact that I was, like, whipping it out in public. Like, she was out, like on an airplane. That was always her big thing. Like, people are going to see him. Like, well, maybe they are. But probably they're bad. not even going to notice. Because actually, I'm damn good at this. And most people right. don't notice. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and would you feel weird about giving your, a baby a bottle right now? If the answer is no, then the baby has the right to eat. Yeah. Um, right. So that was a long answer about Sorry. what Lillian yeah. is. <laughs> but I did that for a long time. Um and I became a midwifery student and I was a student for a long time. And then I had a brief stint in private practice as a midwife. We weren't licensed in the state yet. Um, we'd had no no laws around us at all. And then we did eventually. Um, and I kind of took a break in there. I went back to school. I finished my bachelor's degree. I became a sexuality educator. I worked at the tool shed. And then I returned. I still went to birth with my friends and did childbirth education for family members and stuff. So I stayed involved, but not super. Um, and then I started doing sexuality education. And 
before I went back to doing birth work myself, like in an active for pay sort of a way, um, I was asked to come out to a doula support group meeting and teach a couple classes about typical healing of the body in the postpartum and topics like that, getting the spice back after you're, <laughs> mm-hmm. after you have a baby, all those ridiculous things. Um, and in those interactions with doulas and childbirth educators, I realized that the world of sex ed was really light years ahead of where most of the birth workers that I was coming into contact were in terms of welcoming environments and inclusion and acceptance and expanding the mind's idea about what sex is and what gender is. Um, And so the first thing I did was uh, I heard a story about um, a trans parent who had been excluded at a playgroup only because nobody knew how to politely include them. Like they somehow thought that it would be a different way to include them than it would be assist. Like they just got real freaked out because they were afraid they were going to do something wrong. And so what they did instead was nothing. And the person mm. never came back to that play group. And I, they told me that story after I'd finished teaching a different class. And I said, oh, do you all need an LGBTQ inclusion course because i could write that for you like right now and they said yes and i did that first and then we did at the tool shed we did a medical conference um for healthcare providers and a few of the people from the birth world came to that and in there we talked about um we talked there was a one of the sessions was on compassionate care for kinky people and the birth workers who were there initially thought that wasn't going to apply to them at all Hmm. And by the end of it, they were like, wow, can you come teach a class about this for us as well? And so from there, we took that first topic of LGBT inclusion and the second of working with kinky families. And we added um, the first session is just like typical sexual health and pleasure in the childbearing year. So from the time you get pregnant through six weeks postpartum, like what does that typically look like? But that's really a lot about peeling back layers of shame about sexual pleasure and about working with people. And when they say things like sex hurts every time, what do I do that as a care provider, you're not recoiling and saying, I don't know, here's a book, (laughs) ask your friends. Um, (laughs) Or the worst, did you talk to your doctor? Um, Because the answer to that question is no. Um, So that's so few doctors have had any training to deal with it that that even if they had talked to their doctor, they're not getting an answer, most likely. Um, no shade on the doctor. That shade goes to medical schools. Um, so that's the first one. The second one is LGBTQ plus inclusivity. The third class is working with, um, how do I say it in the description? doesn't really matter. It's working with polyamorous families and working with kinky folks, which is a lot about kind of discerning if the person in front of you has been abused or if they're having consensual things that are physical happening to them. But also some advice that if you figure out or someone confides in you that they're kinky, like for safe play during pregnancy, because the rules need to shift a little bit yeah. and people are continue to be kinky while they're pregnant. So they should know how to play safely. Um, and then the fourth class is working with survivors of sexual trauma. Um, the fifth class is about consent and how we as healthcare providers bring consent into the room. Um, and it talks a lot about power dynamics. Um, are you asking before you touch people every single time? 
Are you sure you are? One of the things about the touchy-feely birthy professions like massage therapy, chiropractic care, acupuncture, doulas, midwives, is we really seem to believe that because our motives are magnanimous, our touch is always welcome. Um, And there's a lot also of like, you will hear people say this, like, I can look at someone in labor and know where they need touch. <laughs> I wish that, that all of you could see. The, like, maybe the gasp will be audible enough in the audio <laughs> on this, but the uh, we just all physically recoiled. <laughs> and the thing is, when I teach this class, and I say like a lot of us believe this, I'm teaching it to birthy people, mm-hmm. and they're like, "Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah." <laughs> <laughs> right. So the fifth class is about that, which I think is really which, Im- wow. It sounds like it's a really important one it is a really important one and in that class we also talk about working with sex workers there's a small section at the end on working with sex workers and then the last class in this series is just wrapping all of that up and talking about what impacted your own practice like what you'll take with you what you want to leave behind um and it was a curriculum that i wrote uh i developed on my own uh i teach it a few times a year it's long it's 24 hours of education it's ridiculously cheap. Everyone says I need to raise my rates, but I don't really, I do want to make more money. I don't want to raise my rates because, okay, this example that I just gave you of what birth workers think about consent. Right, you want them to have this I want education. people to have access to, yeah. I want my education to also be inclusive. Inclusive right? and accessible. And right. accessible, mm-hmm. right? And so. It makes such a difference. So but my children were both born in uh, hospital midwife uh care uh, practice that was both OBs and midwives. I wasn't living in Milwaukee at the time. And the first place that I went to interview, um, I got a weird reaction when I came out to the nurse midwife. And it was a weird enough reaction that I was like, I'm not having my baby here, even though they're six blocks from my house and the Mm. hospital is 12 blocks from my house. (laughs) I need to find another place because this sucks. And the second place that I went to, which was not at all convenient to my house, but relatively convenient to my job, (laughs) um, the midwife looked at my paperwork, looked back up at me and asked, where's insert ex-partner's name? And I was just like, oh, okay, you're really seeing me. I can have a baby here and trust that you will take care of me. And it was a night and day experience. Yeah. 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 I think we have a new layer in in these, uh, a new layer that is a barrier in these interactions too, as queer people, um, as non-monogamous people in our healthcare is that, Everything is electronic charts now, right? And so I was receiving care personally at this one healthcare facility and I got a referral for neurology, but they didn't have a neurologist there. So I went over to a completely different healthcare system to see a neurologist and that neurologist was still able to pull up my records from that previous appointment. I did not sign a release for that. And from my records all the way down here in Milwaukee, I was living somewhere else briefly. And look at everything. So if you come out as queer, as non-monogamous, as trans, as non-binary to one healthcare provider and they put it in your chart, there is good and bad in that, right? It means that if you continue to see respectful healthcare providers, they can look at it and know. And it means that no matter who sees your chart and how they feel about that, 
they will know. And you are now subject to all of their feelings about it as well. Right. So if you're in a car accident, that's mm-hmm. all going to come up in, you know, your negotiation with the person whose car hit you's lawyers. Yeah. It's all out there. If you're in a car accident and you're unconscious and they take in, they wheel you in and they pull up your records. Now, uh, a completely anonymous to you set of people working in the ER know that you're trans or know that you're taking estrogen supplements or know that you're in a lesbian relationship or know that your partners are Dave and Bob. Like they know whatever is in your chart immediately. Um, And so a lot of folks who are living these lives that are not what we think of as typical, I hate that, just to be really clear, right, are hesitant, more hesitant than ever to share this information with their healthcare providers. And it, it puts everyone at risk. And and I and also, it, I don't blame them. Right, right. right. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, cuts so hard both ways because your care will not be the care you deserve if you don't feel like you can share who you authentically are right and you will have unhappy healthcare experiences that are healthcare experiences you're consciously choosing to go have whether you know for whatever reason right and all of the things you said are also true yeah Yeah. And I guess I want to make a note, too, that the other thing that can go into your chart is your sexual trauma. It'll go in your chart, too. And then every healthcare provider that opens your chart has access to that information about you. And so, again, we can add that to the reasons why we don't report. Right. Mm -hmm. Because I don't want to be the person that survived the sexual assault for my whole life. I don't want that to be my whole identity. Right. Right. I don't don't want that to be when you, you know, fall down the stairs and have to have an x-ray of your wrist that to be like a question they ask you about. Right. Yep, exactly. So it's really hard. Electronic charting is great. It does a lot of really great things and removes a lot of barriers, but it is adding a layer to anyone who's not like cis straight and white seeking care, you know, and how can, how can um, having a child with a birth worker be different while poly? Oh, oh right. To come back to the end. Oh, yeah. <laughs> to, to talk about that. Um, do you mean, can you can you give me a stricter question sure. on that? I just mean like how like poly folks can be treated and maybe what oh. you and, and your, your practice one day will do differently. Right. Think. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so... One of the things that's like, so the very first thing you do when you go to any healthcare provider is you fill out forms, right? So starting right there to make forms accessible, to make them inclusive, to say like, there's so much out there that still says like mother and father, Ooh, including Wisconsin birth certificate reporting forms, by the way, Mm -hmm. you're on there as the mother and the mother's husband and no other way. There's nobody else that can be. And if you are married to one person and they're not your child's parent, the person you're married to still ends up on your birth certificate. Yeah. There's a, it's a legal, specifically legal presumption that, a child born in wedlock is a product of that wedlock. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so like, so for us, the forms are the first step, right? We bring, we, we create the forms that say your name 
and partner and with an S in parentheses and you have more than one line, right? We have a place for uh, your gender, right? Instead of your sex, because they're different, right? right? And it's oh. not a circle one. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, it's a gender colon line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, you, we have uh, a place for pronouns. We have, uh, we, there are things that we need legal names for in the medical care in the medical system Mm -hmm. so a place for that but it's not at the beginning of the form right like let's talk about who you are and then later on we can talk about what the law says like we can just get your legal name in one place and 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 cast it aside after that right so there's like just in the very beginning with documentation is the very first place um is as silly as it sounds, making a space that's visually welcoming to people. That sounds silly. Uh, <laughs> right. It's like my interior decorator, <laughs> right? But you, you, we pick up so much from our. Right. I mean, if you walk into a place that's full of pink and blue, mm-hmm. and yeah. you know that's sending a particular kind of message, right? And if you walk into a place that has representations of lots of different kinds of families, and that isn't pink and blue it's going to send a different message. Right. And also with no uh, uh, no religious iconography also, I feel like, um, I don't know, obviously religion and um, colonization are so tied up in each other and are also so heavily involved in oppression that, um, and I also know that there are very great people of every single faith who are doing the hard work of promoting equality, but the iconography is so oppressive. Um, so well, and if an individual who's coming to you seeking care wants to have that as part of their own personal yes, experience, they that's def- their business. Right. As opposed to you saying it's part of the environment for right. everybody. Exactly. I can have my beliefs at home and you can bring your beliefs with you. Absolutely. Um, so there's that. Um, we also, our space, as we're, we're actually developing our space right now um is inclusive to people of all abilities so it's wheelchair accessible it's accessible for people with canes and crutches and walkers and all of that too um and then it's just asking people so much of the class that i teach of the series that i teach it really comes down to like how to not be an asshole Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So how do you refer to your body parts? Right. How do you refer to your partners when your baby is born? What name do you think you want the baby to call you? Right. Because we have we we as humans, we have language and we can make this language be whatever we want and we can develop it and we can pick our own names and we don't have to be stuck in this like mom, dad, mother, father, two moms. Right. Like there are a lot of those uh, 80s and 90s lesbians where there's mom and mama or mommy and mama. Right. Mm-hmm. Which is great if that's what you want. Right. But you could be something totally different if you want that instead. So we when my people ask us that a million times when I was pregnant with my my almost 14 year old and um we both kind of wanted to be mommy but we didn't really want to fight about it (laughs) so like okay you know what the baby will figure out how to you know distinguish us Mm -hmm. when they're old enough to communicate and we'll just like we'll see how that happens like we don't have to choose that right and um what ended up actually evolving out of that is I'm that mommy and my ex is this mommy. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, you know, you may want to make affirmative choices because sometimes the outcomes are a little odd <laughs> and also sometimes a little confusing. Like people always guess wrong. Mm, yeah. <laughs> That's really funny. That reminds me of the book Educated where it's grandma down the hill and grandma over in town because both of them wanted to be grandma. That's really good. Um, but yes, yeah, so those kinds of questions too. What do you want to be called? Um like as your parental title, because we do pull those out a lot when someone's having a baby. Good job, mom. Good job, dad. Right. Um, well, when you're talking about legal name, I was also thinking about, you know, oftentimes there's health insurance involved and right. you need to figure out like who is authorized to agree to care and, yeah. you know, make consent and all of that. And so often that gets shortcutted to, are you the mom? Right. Mm -hmm. And I have had some somewhat confrontational experiences with people at front desks where, you know, they have even threatened to not give my child care because, like, this child has two moms. What are you really asking? Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's so much that needs to be retooled. I know that you've t talked to me about this before personally, but I know that there are a lot of problems within the birth worker community as far as like inclusivity for sure, but then regarding race and and like problems with specifically like women of color not getting the care they need. Yeah. Um, and I know that I guess I wanted to, you to be able to speak to how your practice. Do you call it a practice? Yeah. Yeah. How your practice is going to also be different because of like your partner and yeah. um, who else is going to be involved. Yeah. So um, I feel really lucky. I'm going to get to work with another newly licensed midwife named Sasha and she is um, Afro-Latinx woman of color. And um, our goal is to get our office into the 53206 zip code or as close to it as we possibly can. And for people who don't know, 53206 is the epicenter of the black maternal morbidity and mortality crisis in the United States. Um, we women are women of color and their babies are dying at about three times the rate of white women in Milwaukee. Wow. Um, in the childbearing year. Um, well, it's actually the uh, perinatal period. So that's the period of pregnancy and up to one year postpartum. So it's more than just a year. Wow. Um, they are dying. They are being injured. They are not being heard. They are not being respected. They are not being believed. I mean, I feel like I think most of us are aware of what happened when Serena Williams had her baby, where this is a a, a black woman who is super famous and not financially struggling and could afford the best care and um, had a cesarean section and at a f and has a she has a clotting disorder right and a few hours postpartum could feel that she was getting a blood clot her baby was just hours old and she called the nurse and the nurse was dismissive and she called back and another nurse was dismissive and she ended up getting up out of her bed at a few hours postpartum after a cesarean and walking down the hall and finding someone and saying, I have a clot forming, I need an ultrasound. And they stalled to the point where she could have died. Like it was a close call for her. And so when we are looking at the factors that Im negatively impact outcomes for women of color, we think that it's poor diet or lack of ability to get quality care or poor education or 
um, not having an advocate, right? We, we, we think that that's got to be what it's about. And really, it's just about racism. It's two factor with racism. One, it's that we don't believe people of color when they tell us their truth. And it is second, that the stress of being black in America is so overwhelming that it contributes to poor health outcomes. Um, and so in our practice, I am excited to be able to support the work that Sasha will be doing in the black community in Milwaukee. I just really want to do the things that she needs done to help her do that work. We know that outcomes are better when people can seek care from folks who share their background, right? And you, I can be a wildly empathetic, supportive caregiver for someone of color, but it will not have the same positive impact that it will if she's getting care from someone else of color. And so I want to work a lot uh, doing outreach with the queer community and improving outcomes there because queer people also suffer from minority stress, but it's not the same dramatic kind of impacts that we're seeing in the black community. Mm -hmm. So I really, I want to work with, anyone who needs care and i want to support sasha's work as well doing that outreach so another thing that i wanted to bring up was that the a lot of midwifery is connected with like religion mm -hmm. and i didn't know that until i got pregnant really um and started talking to you about midwifery does that cause a lot of exclusivity and racism, uh, bigotry, whatever the case may be. Or have you found that? Like, Yeah. So it's really interesting because people who kind of walk down these natural life paths, right? So we're talking maybe home birthers or baby wearers or long-term breastfeeders, co-sleepers, homeschoolers, right? Like all of these kind of natural paths for family life. They tend to fall pretty heavily on one end of a spectrum or another. So you have people who are very religious, who are doing these things maybe for less government interference or because they believe that their God is protecting them and watching out for them, and they want as little interference in that relationship with God as they can have. Um, there's a lot of reasons why very religious people choose these kind of natural life paths, right? And then there's the people that are at the far other end of the spectrum who are very progressive or very liberal, who are, um, ad I, you know, outside of the world of birth, also trying to advance other progressive causes. So you end up, that's kind of, and then there's, there are people in, fall along the middle of the spectrum too, but they're not the, like really, it's like a teeter-totter mostly. Curve. It <laughs> is a U-shaped curve, right? And so then as follows that, midwives tend to be kind of, along in those areas too. Although I do want to say that I feel like the younger end of the millennial spectrum and the beginning of the Gen Z folks who are going into midwifery are probably more in the middle. Not all of them, obviously, but we we see a greater swath of people in the middle. And we also see oh, people developing healthier relationships with the work of midwifery and building in ways to not burn out in 10 years because that's the average burnout rate of a midwife is 10 years. 10? Oh, okay. um, yeah, it doesn't. I mean, that's still a lot of babies in 10 years, potentially. So, <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. But that's not a long time in a career. It's yeah, not. No. And then you're starting over doing something else um and so i'm very excited to see what the younger end of the millennials and the and the gen z folks are doing with midwifery because i think it's very exciting so yes and you will you okay so you'll definitely meet some of the more conservative or more religious midwives who will tell you like um i'm not really comfortable serving gay people or a trans person or um, you might even get some turfs who you will definitely get some turf midwives who will say like i don't 
believe that that's a woman or I don't believe that that's a man right like whatever and just don't want to be part of that but you'll also get a lot of those more religious or conservative folks who will say oh I can take care of anybody um and it's like can they provide solid clinical care probably right is that what every is that the is that everything that giving birth is about? No, it's definitely not. And also, are your biases going to actually impair the care that you're giving? Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah, you can see that exhibited with working with queer families or people of color or just working with people who aren't Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, but you see it too. I mean, and this is across the whole spectrum of midwifery, and it's really sad for me. There's a lot of classism in home birth midwifery. There's a lot of like, you need to be eating this diet and whatever it takes to eat this diet is what you have to be doing. And you're not doing a good job of being pregnant if you're not. And you need to be taking these specific vitamins that are food-based or plant-based and bioavailable. And yes, it's gonna run you $100 a month, but that's just what you need to be doing or we can't guarantee anything, right? And- As though we could guarantee anything. (laughs) And you'll hear midwives say like, the only thing we can control is your diet. And so that's what we're gonna do, right? And so you end up with a lot of classism. You get midwives all the time who are like, you know, you're really stressed out. We need you to enroll in a prenatal yoga class, Uh right? And But is not offering a way to do prenatal yoga for free or for low, low cost, right? It's all of these things, these assumptions that we bring to care that are gonna exclude a large portion of the population you know, you've got um, the standard diet that a lot of midwives like to recommend, and it's not culturally inclusive. It's not going to be a diet that people who didn't grow up white and wealthy are comfortable eating, mm-hmm. you know, and we call it a requirement. And so, and when you look at it from an intersectional standpoint, there's the racism and there's the classism and then there's the homophobia, right? And there's there's so much ableism as well. Like this assumption, I worked in a birth center a few years ago and she decided to install a new birth suite on the second floor of her building, but the only way to access that was by a staircase. And I said, like the people can't get up here. People in wheelchairs can't get up here. People on crutches can't get up here. But also if you're nine months pregnant, you don't want to take a lot of stairs. Like, right. That's kind of Well, insane. and that goes yeah. back to that thing about ableism, right? And like they yeah. need to be walking and pregnant people need to be walking so, and they need to be doing uh, yoga and they need to be staying fit and this yeah. needs to be and and she actually said to me, if somebody is in a wheelchair they probably aren't going to qualify for an out-of-hospital birth anyway, and so I don't mm. see it as relevant. Yikes. Oh, my God. And I was like, okay, like, <clears throat> back it up, yeah. right? So now you're talking about that kind of exclusion, but you're also talking about making your practice so that these people's potentially disabled family members can't come and attend them, right? Yes. Like, you're excluding right. yeah, layer after layer. about of- the excluded pregnant person right which it is also right right but also their partner who may be in a wheelchair their mother who may be need a walker Mm -hmm. their children who may not be able to do stairs like there's a lot of other factors um so yes you see a lot of that both because of conservatism and religion but also because of just these spots where we can't see things anymore right. right the intrinsic whiteness and ableism of our culture uh, if people are interested in reading more from an academic point of view about some of the stuff that you've been talking about, there's an amazing feminist anthropologist named Krista Craven, both with C's. 
okay. um, who teaches at the College of Worcester, the University of Worcester, whichever one it is that's in Ohio. And um, she has done a ton of her, like all her dissertation research was on home births in Virginia. Oh, wow. And um, unlicensed midwives who practiced in Virginia doing home births. And she definitely talked a lot about the sort of two extreme ends of this she is herself queer she has a a feminist methodology book that she co-wrote with an anthropologist of color like she's touching on all these same things that you're touching on so definitely interested in the academic side of some of this conversation um i strongly recommend pretty much anything that krista craven has written great the other thing that i wanted to to touch on was was promoting your new business I, don't, I mean I know you're not open yet but what are your plans for uh, having a practice so it's really fun because we are looking for office space right now mm-hmm. um, and that's a search uh, because of the things we just talked about right I want it accessible to everybody and I want it accessible on a bus line and I wanted to have ample parking and like I want this to be a space where there are no limitations for people getting to us but for now we are seeing clients uh, in the short term we're seeing clients in their homes we're doing all of the appointments in their homes so we go out and do our prenatal visits and um, then attend the birth at home obviously and then we're doing all of their postpartum care at home and there's already kind of a home element built in even when we have our office like there'll be one prenatal appointment that happens in a person's home then obviously the birth and then two or three of their postpartum visits will still happen at home too because we don't really want people with tiny babies having to go out yeah and about yeah Yeah. um so we are um we are taking clients we are seeing people um which is really really exciting too what is the name of your business so uh we have separate names as of right now because we're still sorting everything out i am transitions birth services for everybody like a little space there between Mm -hmm. every body and sasha's work is with prism p-r-i-s-m birth services um, and you can find both of us on Facebook. All right. I will put links to Facebook for both of those. Great. Um, and yeah, oh, I guess when when do you plan to have a... Well, I guess you're you're in the process now. So have... have yeah, as soon as yeah. we can find something you know? suitable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. We've got appointments this week to see more spaces. Uh, we went and saw one downtown and we were really psyched about it. And then we... Um, ran into somebody as we were leaving the building who had moved out fairly recently. And they, I was like, what did you think of it here? Did you like it? And they were like, the the tenants upstairs are saying there are bed bugs. And I was like, okay, oh, bye. Yikes. Yeah. So that was a bummer because we were excited. And you, you know, so it's just a process like that. Like, yeah. but we have spaces that we're going to be seeing this week. So I hope we're in a space this spring. That is our goal. Well, and I guess the last thing I would want to touch on is, do you have advice for poly folks who are looking to, who are maybe pregnant or thinking about getting pregnant, who, who um, wanted to look into uh, having a, a midwife or doula or, um, and how specifically like poly folks should broach that? Uh, being poly with the healthcare <laughs> provider? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> Because of the potential for abuse, I would say never share anything until you feel like it's a safe thing to do. Um, And I would say get a look at their paperwork. You know, the forms that we were talking about that are your first 
like your first entryway and see what they say. If those forms still say mom and dad or mother and father or mother and husband on them, Mm -hmm. that may not be a space for you, right? Mm -hmm. But if you, if the forms say like your name and partner or partners is even better, right? Take a look at those things. Um, You can ask outright, like, have you ever worked with a non-monogamous family before? Mm -hmm. Home birth midwives and doulas, are going to offer you a free consultation where you can sit down and ask any questions that you want before you commit to anything. Right. So if you can get a look at their paperwork, that's great. But you can also sit down and have a conversation with them. And I feel like a lot like queer people, polyamorous folks, you've got your radars on. If mm-hmm. you if you ask, have you worked with polyamorous people before? And you know, there's that moment before they answer that's going to tell you even more than their answer does, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And trust your gut. Don't go somewhere where you're not going to be safe and respected. Um, you ideally are going to want a relationship with someone where you can explain all of the partners in the relationship and how they're going to be involved. And you can expect that that healthcare provider is going to listen and treat this partner as the primary, the other primary parent, if that's what you want. And this partner more like a friend, if that's what you want, or maybe two or three of the other partners, you're all four going to be equally actively involved. And so you want someone who's going to believe you when you say that and facilitate that relationship for you. Very cool. Yeah. All right. I think that's all of the points that I wanted to touch on. Did you want to add anything more for the the audience? Um, is it okay if I give the dates of my upcoming training session series? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. We have, um, for anyone who heard me talking about the birth worker inclusivity training series that I mentioned a minute ago, I have two of these series coming up. So if you are a If you heard this podcast and you are also a birth worker or you're thinking about getting involved as a doula or midwifery student, but also I've had massage therapists take the class, um, acupuncturists, birth photographers, um, physical therapists, nurses and student nurses. I've got an OBGYN who is saying they're taking it the next time. Um, and a nurse midwife also who's planning to take the next series. So it's really, if you are working with people during that year that they're having a baby, this series is welcoming for you. I have one in Milwaukee for local folks or people who are willing to travel, um, February 21st, 22nd, 23rd. Um, they're long days. I mean, it's only eight hours of class, but it's a lot to take in. Um, we're doing it over one weekend as an intensive And then I'm doing another online series as well, starting on Saturday, March 7th, and it'll go for the six weeks following out. And for that, you register and I send you each week a link to a Zoom classroom. And we are all in there together having this conversation um, and doing the training that way. For both the in-person and the online, I'm also recording every session so that if you paid to register for that class and you have to miss it because you're at a birth, because your kid's got the flu, because your car didn't start, you have access to that video, but only the people who are registered for that series have access to it. So one of the things that's hard about being a birth worker is scheduling anything else in your life because you're always on call. Um, So I built that in so that it's less scary for people to commit to spending the money. Uh, There's always the worry when you've spent money to do something that you're going to have to miss it. So Mm -hmm. all of those are available for watching online afterwards. I send out a link of the edited video once it's ready. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Yeah. 
So thank you for letting me share that. And you can find that on Facebook too, Birth Worker Inclusivity Training Series. It's a lot of letters, but. Bits. Bits. Yeah, Yeah, because you helped me name it. (laughs) I love acronyms. You do, and you're good at them. You're real. That's not a way my brain works. I'm not good with acronyms. I didn't really think about it when making this podcast, though, because technically the the initials are P-U. But then I was like, well, and that's just stupid, right? And then I was like, well, if it's the Polyamory Uncensored podcast, that's PUP. And all of my listeners can then be my puppers or puppies. And so I love it. So then I liked it again. But oh. I was like, oh, PU, that doesn't work. That sounds horrible. It's stinky. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but no, it's pup now. Officially. Perfect. That's perfect. I love it. Thank you so much for being interviewed. Thank it was you so really much for fun. having me. I would love to sit here and talk for another half an hour. Yeah. <laughs> thank you for having me on. This was a lot of fun. Uh, thank you so much. Yeah. yeah. And that is it from us at Polyamory Uncensored. We have been Lindsay Miller and Katie Williams. We'd like to thank podcast husband Rob for being our sound engineer. And thank you, Lindsay, for editing this podcast so that we sound smart. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Polyamory Uncensored. Contact us at polyamoryuncensored at gmail.com if you have a listener question or a comment. And if you'd like to support us at all, you can send us a monthly contribution at anchor.fm slash polyamoryuncensored and simply click on the support this podcast button. If you'd like to support the podcast with a one-time contribution, we've set up a PayPal link to make it super easy. Thank you for your support in any amount at paypal.me slash polyamoryuncensored. We hope you have enjoyed this episode and remember, we love you. Bye.